Patrick Lockwood, psychologist, professor, and author of The Fear Problem, joins me for an afternoon delight. There's got to be a better way to put that. A full conversation about psychology and the ills of the modern human entity. This conversation is great because he's a smart-ass fellow. He's very well-read. He's got, you know, some writing chops, too, and a lot of experience in the... I don't know what the psychologist helms. uh, The desk? While you're prone? I don't know. Never been to a psychologist other than these conversations. So he's got a lot of experience. He's got a lot of knowledge. He's got a lot of wit. He's kind of a cynical, clinical psychologist. And he's got a YouTube channel that I really enjoy listening to when I'm busy with other things and keeping my hands, uh, you know, engaged in domestic activities, such as you probably do when you're not watching my videos, but playing them anyways. We talk about the state of psychology and psychiatry, and we also get into uh, trauma and a lot of the communication issues of our time and our day. Also, if you guys care about me, uh, like those coffee filters by that company, if you care, um, then while you're watching this and you're not engaged with your fingers, if you want to, you can write down the timestamps of what we're talking about and when, and I will add those to the description. That is a feature that is being requested, and I don't really have time to produce those because I go on to the next conversation. I'm not complaining. I love this work. I love all your support. Here is Patrick Lockwood. I'm an adjunct professor at uh, California Lutheran University. Oh, cool. And what's your specific topic um, that you're teaching this quarter or semester? Uh, this semester, I'm teaching two classes. I'm teaching adolescent treatment, so it's kind of the biopsychosocial approach to adolescent uh, mental health and addiction issues, and then the treatment of those issues. And then the second class is just the standardized addiction class, because in the state of California, in order to be licensed as a psychologist, an MFT, or anything else, you have to have at least three solid hours of addiction training. Uh, most physicians don't have to do that, but we do. Um so uh, since my background and my specialty is in treating addiction, I was hired for that purpose. Is your expertise adolescence or just the... I, I don't have... I have uh, I have growing expertise, I guess would be the most honest way of describing it, about the neuroscience of trauma and addiction. Mm-hmm. And I my post... Well, or my pre-doc internship was with adolescents, and I enjoy working with adolescents, however... My practice has predominantly been with young adults. So technically speaking, if you look at the most recent definition of adolescence, it's been expanded to about 24, 25. So theoretically speaking, I've worked predominantly with adolescents over my life. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been reading a lot of, well, listening to a lot of Jonathan Haidt. Um, I read The Coddling of the American Mind, and I'm going through The Happiness Hypothesis. And also I'm reading iGen by Twenge. And uh, just on the topic of adolescence, and actually I was going to talk about trauma, but the mm. the definition of the adolescent is expanding, but also the behavior of people acting like adolescence is also uh, kind of yeah. being prolonged. Uh-huh. Yeah, we have politicians, news media personnel, uh, Fortune 500 CEOs who are quite literally acting like <laughs> adolescents. And I have some theories as to why that's the case, you know? 
Yeah. Well, I I was because I was thinking about that in terms of, you know, just the human being as a biological entity, because of our gray matter is so big, the mom needs to pop us out as soon as possible uh, because of hips and, you know, just basic physiological needs to get the baby out of there. Um, Right. So we've offloaded a lot of our development onto, you know, I guess what we can call socialization and culture and learning outside of the womb and a lot of that building. And this is just kind of a broad question, but it seems like due to certain factors, we're extending that uh, that period of development longer and longer, perhaps because, you know, death doesn't happen till later. And so there could be some good things with that expansion of being able to, you know, I guess not be an adult in a way, because you get to try on different things and explore and maybe learn yeah. Yeah, I would say that like most changes in scientific definitions of things, it's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I agree with you when you say that maybe it's a good thing because it allows us to have more time to explore and not have to be rigidly one identity, etc. at one age. Uh, the, the main reason from my understanding that we're expanding the definition of adolescence both according to the World Health Organization and according to most adolescent developmental scholars, like Twingy, et cetera, is because um, brain development still is pretty plastic. It's pretty expansive. Brain development is still, uh, frontal neocortex development is still underway up till about 24, 25, and it doesn't really stop until about 24, 25. So we figure that Theoretically, you've reached maturation by the time you're 24, 25 in terms of just your physiology in your mind. Um, But that doesn't mean that you actually learn the skills and the values and the beliefs and and all that to actually be an adult at 24, 25, as we've seen with all sorts of interesting people in the media. Well, there's kind of like a, like a, I guess, spiritual, moral, uh, psychological, in the broad sense, I'm using all those terms, uh, kind of value to a plasticity of mind, uh, mm-hmm. you know, cultivating the ability to always be growing, always be learning. So mm-hmm. it seems like, do you have to, do we have to kind of use a software kind of constant development because the hardware just gets locked in and then do we end up like battling against that calcification of our neurons or do you think that those are two different processes? I think that we still have a a slightly antiquated notion of neuroplasticity Hmm. uh, or at least most people in academia do um, because again it's, it's hard to keep up with all the research that's coming out. I mean there are dozens and dozens of articles that come out every day because it's just such a big industry to publish. So it's hard to wade through what's legitimate research and what's not legitimate research. And, you know, is this study with five rats actually valid, et cetera. So (laughs) the gist, from from what I can tell, at least the gist of the neuroplasticity research is that basically speaking over the course of our lifespan, even up into our eighties and nineties, we still have enough of a plastic brain that we can make some changes that allow us to see the world differently and experience the world differently and maybe even react differently in the world. Um, And the author that everyone kind of talks about in this, like, healthy brain world, at least in SoCal, is Dan Siegel, you know, the 
uh, Mr. Integration and Mindsight and all that stuff. Uh, so it's, it's a big deal. I think it's just a matter of speaking with a little bit more specificity about how plastic the brain is because there are some people who say, well, you can change anything about your brain at any age, which is not technically true. And there are other people who are like, well, after 25, you're kind of set. I mean, temperamentally, you're kind of set after about eight or nine. But in terms of your intellect and your um, your kind of your attachment hmm. style and stuff of that nature, you can flex around a little bit for things like working memory. I just saw an article that came out yesterday that showed that we could expand our working memory a little bit. Um, things like that, you know. So it, you have to speak specifically about a particular intellectual yeah. or emotional domain to, to talk about how plastic it is. Yeah. But you say that that temperamentally we're set. And so could you define what you mean by temperamentally? Does that have to do with those big five sure. pillars of consciousness? Yeah, absolutely. So everyone's favorite personality construct now that Jordan Peeper, Peterson's uh, very, very popular, I guess you could say. Um, he's, he's absolutely right when he says that the big five inventory is the most well-validated, well-researched measure of personality. Now... It's technically more a measure of temperament per se than what we would conceptualize as personality when we talk about like narcissistic personality disorder, et cetera. But we know for a fact that a lot of our temperament is heritable and it's more concrete over the lifespan. And I did a talk on this, it's on YouTube somewhere. And looking through the research on the big five myself, I found that basically speaking, we don't go up 10 percentile or 20 percentile points on conscientiousness or extroversion as our life changes. The average person goes up one to five percentile points, I think, over the course of their young adult life. So from like 18 to 27 or 30. Um, By which you mean that they become more conscientious uh, in relationship to like how they experience their environment, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So, but our baseline level of conscientiousness and extroversion in particular are more concrete, comparatively speaking. Now, open-mindedness tends to go up as you get older. It tends to increase kind of incrementally very, in very small ways as you get older, especially if you have the right environment. But uh, generally speaking, if, so like I'll use myself as an easy example. I am very conscientious. I, I cannot stand being late. I cannot stand things dis being disorganized in any way, shape, or form. Hmm. Um, if I research something, I research it past 100 references just to give a 10-minute talk, etc., mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And I will probably never go beneath the 98th percentile of conscientiousness. I'm also in the fourth percentile of agreeableness. So I'm terribly disagreeable. If you want to argue about something, I will take you to the mat all day long. And that's probably not going to go anywhere. I could probably do a lot of LSD, and I'm still probably not <laughs> going to give up the argument if, if something comes up that I disagree with. So. Yeah. Those, those things are, uh, agreeableness can change a little bit. Conscientiousness and extroversion are probably more stable of the five. And they that really concretizes because of neurodevelopment around eight or nine, because around eight or nine is when our brain kind of first settles down after birth in terms of its neurodevelopment and pruning and all that good stuff. Some authors say up to 12, but most, most of our kind of midbrain and motor sensory cortex is more hmm. concretized after about eight or nine. If you get set with a certain sort of distribution of your big five, are you just screwed for life and you just need constant therapy to like handle this? Or is the, is the reality and the human personality so-called uh, kind of 
accepting of these different configurations and these different configurations on a social level fit together in order to to make a, a greater whole yeah absolutely i think we need all types of personalities to have a cohesive society just like we need all types of iqs we need all types mm -hmm. of ethnicities etc now this is not like an argument for multiculturalism or anything crazy like that i'm just simply stating that hmm. we need a diverse society for society to be competitive and to keep a hierarchy going because naturally speaking that's how we're designed so if if you have if you're like myself for instance and you have very low agreeableness and as a trait and it's getting you in trouble with your bosses or your friends or etc there is research that shows that uh, even with people who struggle with addiction, there's a lot of actual research on the big five personality and addiction, because that's my specialty. Mm -hmm. And it shows that people who um, who come in for treatment for addiction will have changes in their conscientiousness over time and in terms of their um, agreeableness over time. Now, it's it's not a perfect correlation, but you, you can actually change these traits, especially if they're causing significant impairment in your life. It's just about the degree to which you figure out, A, how impairing is it, because most people are blindly unaware of how they're built and how they function in the world. Most people are on autopilot, which is not necessarily bad. It keeps us alive, and it keeps us kind of functioning socially. We, we don't lose mm -hmm. our minds if we were all neuro neurotically self-aware. Um, mm -hmm. And neuroticism also changes significantly in treatment, too. That's what the research shows. Um, but... Hmm. If you if you're not if you're not aware you can't change anything. If you're aware and you figure out why you have this adaptation, I like to look at things in terms of the concept of adaptation because my my favorite way of looking at the world is through the lens of evolutionary psychology, evolutionary biology, and evolutionary anthropology. So mm -hmm. everything is an adaptation. Some of your temperament, genetically speaking, needed to be there because it served your family members for generations. So being me being disagreeable has served my bloodline, my dad's and his brother, terribly disagreeable sons of bitches. But it served them because it's made them very forward-thinking, competitive, mm. strong people in their field. So I look at things in terms of adaptation because it destigmatizes the concept of, well, maybe you're a disagreeable son of a bitch. There's a reason for that. There's probably a social reason, a family reason, and a genetic kind of temperamental reason for that. And learning why you have that adaptation and how to either use it more appropriately, because yeah. I can't be just my patients i can't tell my patients to go fuck themselves that's not going to work very well but i can or i could but i don't think i would get very far in therapy and i might lose my license but generally speaking i think it's it's more like how do i use my disagreeableness to negotiate with people how do i use it to negotiate with my publisher about the price of my book how do i use it to yeah. you know be a better kind of romantic partner and and kind of make sure we have strong boundaries etc how do i use my conscientiousness in adaptive ways not a way that cause problems. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Peterson has gotten in trouble with is the concept of hierarchy. And, and he's touted the, you know, the whole lobster thing. And, and cer certain yeah. people just, they wig out about the hierarchy because it just means they, they have this conception of a hierarchy is purely dominatory and purely exploitive uh, or exploitative. Yeah. Um, with regards to those temperamental traits, do you think that yeah. there's a kind of a, a temperamental caste system that gets formed, like where these different traits that people have, like interlock them into a hierarchy. And with regards to what you're saying about becoming aware, 
of these things and if they're appropriate or not, like with regards to a hierarchy or like teamwork or something like that, is there ways that you've seen that we can become aware of how hierarchies form and then use that to be less exploitative? Absolutely. And I think it's really about a more nuanced conversation because what Peterson is saying is absolutely correct. Every species on the planet operates in some kind of hierarchical structure. Now, what that actually means in terms of practice would require an hour and a half conversation or more about every particular species. To talk about how ants work in a hierarchy or bees mm. or who, whatever, chimpanzees, different types of macaques versus bonobos, different cultures, different ways of operating, different personalities, so to speak, so different hierarchical structures. Hmm. So the one, the one major problem I find is that people are listening to him speak and hearing one statement and overgeneralizing that, you know, um, hierarchy means that it's a rigid system that never changes, that only disadvantages people near the middle and the bottom. And that's not at all how it works at all. There's more symbiosis in a hierarchy than anything else. Hmm. Um, and the second part of your question, which I think is very relevant, is how do we deal with this in such a way that we can, let's say, maybe cooperate better and help the disadvantaged, etc. The first thing I would recommend people do, if they're really serious about understanding what Peterson's talking about, outside of like reading some of the anthropology or you know, ethology literature, is to actually consider the just insane array of hierarchies that we all participate in. Because if you have a job, if you have friends, if you have family, if you have a social group that you're a part of, like the Elk Club or something, if you have a gym that you participate in, all these things, all these different dynamics or these cultures, if you want to call them that, have mm. their own hierarchy. So there are multiple hierarchies within a hierarchy. There are kind of multiple games within the game. So yeah. you need to figure out how to, how to succeed in one game or one hierarchy so you can help people in other hierarchies first, I would recommend. Uh, secondarily, it's not like we can all participate in the big game. Like not everyone goes to the Super Bowl. Not everyone goes to, you know, the World Series. Not everyone is the president, right? So I know we all want to participate in our, our kind of representative democracy that we have here in the U.S., our kind of democratic republic, but it's not how it works. So only certain people get to play this big game, and we can only influence the people at the top so much. Like Peterson says, make your fucking bed, essentially, to borrow a little bit of Bill Burr into the experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, if we do more to take care of ourselves, we can straighten out our immediate hierarchy, our family hierarchy, our friend hierarchy, our gym hierarchy, whatever it is. And the more we straighten out our smaller hierarchies, the easier it is to straighten out our big hierarchies. Because mm -hmm. if we have more grassroots, this is why the grassroots movement is so appealing to people, because it's actually how we function best. It's actually how we change society best. You know, major change rarely comes from the top. It almost always starts at the bottom and kind of makes its way upward, etc. Yeah. yeah. I was in a, I don't know where I'm going with this statement, but uh, it's still ringing in my head. Like th this morning, particularly, I got caught in like this Twitter fiasco of just trying to oh, talk Lord. about. I know. I've been doing a series on on gender, sexuality, and transition, and trying to uh -huh. speak to as many different people as possible. And right. I 
periodically get a criticism that I'm not representing everybody or I'm only representing one group, right? Because yeah. it takes time to get that. And then people assume because I've talked to this one person that I agree with that person, even though I've talked to these other people, you know, and this right. uh, weird kind of squishing down of discourse kind of happens. And then... Yeah. That leads to people who are really on fire and really angry, and then they just start throwing mm -hmm. all these words at me. I'm like, I can't have a conversation yeah. anymore. This is this is a right. total impasse now, and mm -hmm. and I, I have this problem where I like I want to engage in good faith, but I'm like, no, this isn't going to go anywhere, you know. Right. Um, so with regards to like social media and like figuring out like there's the activist desire to to make it something acceptable and they're in the act of wanting to achieve change for society they end up doing a lot of wreaking a lot of havoc it seems like um oh yeah in their pursuit of their goal and when you criticize yeah. and this is what happened i criticize the behavior and automatically i'm criticizing the individual or i'm criticizing the identity i'm i'm a transphobe because uh -huh. i say if when you act like this you're turning people off from you know, your goal. And it's just a weird yeah. thing. I don't know how to reach those people or, or. Yeah. No, that's tough. That's a tough circumstance because you, we all think that we're having a rational dialogue when we're disagreeing about these very personal and incendiary topics, like, you know, the trans movement or racism or any of the fun things that just no one understands with any certainty anymore. Um, yeah. The problem is you're actually, and this is something I talk about in the book, right? It's we have this set of evolutionarily adaptive instincts that we've needed for thousands and thousands of years, tens of thousands of years to keep a species going. So we have what most people generally call this tribalistic instinct. And the instinct is I'm with my tribe of, I mean, roughly about 5,000 years ago, we had about eight people in our tribe. And if those eight people in our tribe liked us, we were set. And we could move up and down the hierarchy of those eight people and figure out how to function and have a successful tribe and a successful individual life. Because we have these instincts still, because about 5,000 years ago, I think, was the last time our brain really changed and evolved, we are best suited for small tribes of people. But the problem is we all find ourselves part of huge tribes of people. And not to sound like a nationalist or an isolationist, but generally speaking, we're best designed to function slightly more in smaller groups that look and sound like us. And I'm going to sound like a racist and all sorts of good stuff, and this is going to be super fun. But the truth of the matter is we have a brain that's built for certain problems that are old, and we have these modern problems of having huge numbers of people all around us. And if you don't believe me, you can you can read people like Robin Dunbar, the brilliant, brilliant researcher who came up with Dunbar's number that says we can only tolerate about 150 relationships maximally. And the problem is when you're getting on Twitter and you're having this conversation, I imagine because of you know, how you speak and what I know about you, it's probably a rather nuanced conversation where you're trying to say this one specific thing hmm. is a problem or could be a problem. I bet you even speak in kind of hedges. It could be a problem or it might be a problem. And then people lose their minds as if you've cried, like you said the N-word or something. Yeah. And then you don't know where to go with that because it's like, well, I'm going to be viewed even worse if I try and defend myself. 
So tribe against tribe. So there's this primitive instinct that liter quite literally hijacks us. Yeah. It activates parts of our fear system that are automatic responders. Or as uh, I forget the author, and I feel terrible that I don't remember it off the top of my head. Robert Wright talks about it in his book, Why Buddhism is True. But uh, the, the module mind concept, we have these seven or eight instinctual modules that we've kept and held over for thousands of years, essentially. And one of those instinctual modules is about our threat protection, so to speak. I call it our fear system, uh, or Yakupankhet does. And essentially, when you get in that fight, you're activating their threat protection system, and there's no way in the world that you're going to be able to talk to them rationally because they're seeing you as all bad, black and white thinking. You're automatically all bad. So the only way that's going to be a fruitful conversation is if they calm down and just breathe and then reread what you said or reconsider the position that they're taking. Now, the problem is most people are not that smart. There's an average IQ for a reason, and now I'm going to sound like Stephen Molyneux. Uh, this is going to be even better. <laughs> but, like, not everyone is as thoughtful or reasonable as we would like for them to, to be, right? We have this, I think, because we have technology and fancy businesses and, and social organizations, we think we're rather smart, sophisticated creatures. But we're really not. Yeah. And I think we forget that we're kind of more primitive, ape-like creatures. So this is not to be some kind of eugenicist. It's just to say that we... We, we give ourselves a little too much credit, even though we have a brilliant frontal cortex and much more neocortex than most other species, we're still rather primitive. I, there's a great Christopher Hitchens quote, and I can't remember it exactly, but he's talked about how our amygdala is too big and too powerful and our frontal cortex is too small, etc., yeah. because of evolution and whatever. Um, and it, it's just, it's so true. Like we are, we're still animals. And we forget that. So we get on Twitter, this very fancy and civilized. We can talk to people from thousands of miles away, which is fancy and civilized. But we're not that fancy and civilized, I think. Yeah. So do you think that it's a fool's errand to try to do a grassroots movement to change the way in which people interact with each other in these uh, these discourse spaces? Or uh, I don't know. Uh, I have mixed I have mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, I've seen, and I, I not not to overgeneralize, I've I've seen a number of things come about in the last twenty years where it seems like we can make some small subtle change in the right direction in terms of like having a more adaptive conversation and way of living. Mm -hmm. uh, the easy example in my mind is something like you know. Um, like kind of equality of marriage, so to speak. I think it, it was a tough topic for a lot of people, but generally speaking, common sense was able to weigh out through a grassroots campaign. You didn't hear people at the top talking about gay marriage in any kind of serious way. You didn't hear legit politicians or rock stars. You didn't hear Bono talking about it, really. You, you saw a bunch of people acting at the community level to try and kind of work their way up to the Supreme Court to make it more of a thing. Um, not that I necessarily agree with the Supreme Court decision politically, because I think it's a state's rights issue, but that's a political thing that I'm not an expert on and doesn't even matter. Yeah. But yeah. again, I think we've been able to evolve through the masses once we get a common set of values together. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's not a fool's errand necessarily. I think it's just going to be terribly difficult nowadays because of social media 
and what's called the mainstream media nowadays. I think those fuckers need to die. Like they just need the, the all those businesses just need to collapse. Hmm. I don't wish harm upon anybody. Just so we're clear, yeah. I'm not wishing harm on anyone. Well, I insofar as corporations are individuals, you are wishing harm upon them. Yeah. So so now I'm guilty of a crime. Uh, so so far, I think I've committed at least a couple of hate crimes. So I can't wait to be sued. This should, this should be well, fun. thank you. Thanks, hey, you're uh, you're dragging it. my reputation through the mud too. So we're in this together now. Sweet. <laughs> Hatred by association. That's right. Totally. Yeah. But it seems like, uh, speaking of, uh, I don't know, again, I, I don't know how to formulate this, but like, I go back and I look at how, where the conversation like collapsed and it was like me being critical and I just shouldn't be critical. I should always be either questioning, like kind of like, what do you think about this? And then let everybody else who's watching, you know, end up doing the judging. Like, I don't do any judging. I just ask the good question or, and, and I don't really necessarily criticize somebody's behavior because that's just going to draw them up and, and then put them, it's going to completely destroy any progress whatsoever. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's always risky stating an opinion. And I think like, not to go back to Jordan a lot, but like Jordan says, if you're talking about anything that's worth talking about, it should be uncomfortable. Like, if you're having a legitimate conversation about something, it should not be all sunshine and roses. If you're talking about what matters in life, really, these deep philosophical issues like what is gender or what is racism or hate speech, like, we should be, we should be uncomfortable with each other because we're talking hmm. about primitive instincts, we're talking about values, we're talking about family beliefs and all these other tribalistic kind of things. So we're going to get uncomfortable. I think one of the things we need to figure out how to do is just be okay with the fact that we're uncomfortable. Like to be able to tolerate the discomfort kind of mindfully of the fact that maybe I don't feel safe right now. Back to the whole safe spaces concept. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about the idea that you run away from a tough conversation. I, I would never recommend that you run away from a tough conversation on Twitter. What I would recommend is keep being a good scientist and experimenting and just do your best to try new ways of coming at the conversation, whether it's an open-ended question, a closed-ended question, an observation, a restatement of someone else's idea. Like, there are the English language is both terrible and useful in the sense that there are thousands of ways we can kind of articulate the same concept over and over again, thanks yeah. to our grammar and just the ever-growing dictionary that we've got going on here. So yeah. I believe with with well-meaning, and I think you might even need to state this up front, my intention is this, this is what I was thinking, or this is what I'm curious about. I love the word curious because it seems to be fairly disarming to people. I'm curious what you think about this. Now, obviously, there is a small subset of the population who are just bad faith actors who are always going to be incendiary and nasty, and I, I think that's that's always hard because those people make the most noise, squeaky wheel gets the grease, etc. Mm-hmm. I would generally say, like you've heard from people like Dave Rubin and Sam Harris and all of them, that most people are interested in the conversation. One of the reasons that long-form podcasts like yours and Joe Rogan and Sam and all these have just taken off and they're beating out regular news media in terms of watch time is because people are starved for conversation. We're kind of exhausted with mm-hmm. this uh, incendiary clickbait way of talking about the current events. 
people are very, very interested in YouTube and in how we have a legitimate conversation. So I think having a more curious approach when you talk about these things on Twitter, I think is a very useful thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Social media is turning us into deer caught in strobe lights. Yeah. Oh What's going on? Yeah. What's going exactly. On? Yeah. No. It's, it's sad. It's sad. Yeah. One of the things that you uh, acquiesced to talk about was um, psychology as a profession. And uh, I, I just watched your video on the APA guidelines for men and masculinity. And um, and you did exactly... I wish I knew about you when that came out because you're exactly the person I wanted to talk to you about this because you just went through and you just basically said what you said, which I, I don't want to like summarize you to you, but it was pretty, you pretty laid it bare. Like this is a bunch of really shoddy thinking yes. and motivated reasoning. That's, yes, that is the perfect summation. It's shoddy reasoning and motivated thinking. The, uh, not to be sexist, but the woman who wrote the article, uh, I don't know that she necessarily was thinking in the most unbiased way. Uh, and that's a problem because the APA, the American Psychological Association, not the, Amer not the American Psychiatric, those people tend to be very thoughtful, comparatively okay. speaking. But the American Psychological Association, over the last 20 plus years, has become more and more biased, more and more virtue signaling, etc. Not to echo what other people are saying, but it's my legitimate perspective. Mm -hmm. um, to the point where I, I gave up on that organization. I dropped out like two huh. or three years ago because it's just like... Oh, and you can survive without that, them. They're not like the oh, Actors yeah. Guild. No. Or anything. Okay. no, no, you don't need them. No. Um, it's only... It's, it's to actually to be a part of the APA is kind of like virtue signaling nowadays. Um, I'm with them. Generally speaking, if you're looking for more unbiased science, I would go to the APS because they're... They're very, very strong critical thinkers, and they tear everything apart. In fact, one of the best articles that came out of the APS in the last couple of years was a critique of the concept of the microaggression by Lillenfeld. And I think that was 2016. It was brilliant, very comprehensive, extremely long, um, hmm. and it was a very thoughtful critique. Um, so the APA has become so biased, in my opinion, both my professional and personal opinion, that... I think they will continue to put out these good-sounding narratives that will appeal to a certain segment of the population that have minimal science to them. I mean, one of the things I said in my video that you listened to is that, you know, they don't even define stoicism correctly. They yeah. describe it as stoic, and they don't even know what the hell stoicism is. Um, so it's, it's, it's sad that this once useful body that really did fight for the rights of psychologists to practice to be researchers, to be treated as well as medical doctors who are psychiatrists. That was a very useful history from the APA. And the last 20 plus years, as the tide has turned towards yeah. this kind of tribalistic way of being, they, they, they kind of, uh, they become, they become this, I think I said in the video, they become the CNN of psychology. Which yeah, is you did. <laughs> you are a very cynical clinical psychologist. <laughs> I love that about your videos. Little funny. Yeah. But so the one of the games that I see being played is that you have 
Okay, even using any terms to describe this movement will associate bring up associations that I don't necessarily mean. But this uh, progressivism, cultural Marxism, postmodernism, like whatever this thing is, it seems like their tactic has been to capture the uh, uh, the institutions of authority. Like they, they yeah. capture academia, then you capture, uh, I guess, Nature magazine, you capture the APA, you know, and then and then you just start pumping that out. And what they end up doing, what I've seen them doing is they expend all of that authority that these institutions have saved up by, you know, acting in good faith and being well, well researched. And they just expend it all uh, yeah. like a chicken with the head cut off. Um how in danger do you think that the like something like the DSM, like which is just this authoritative text, this diagnostic manual of things, um, is how vulnerable is it to being captured by ideology, and how is it how how is it kept as a neutral text, and could could it even be a neutral text? I think. Um... I think it hasn't been a very neutral text since I think it was the either the second or third revision in 1980 when they got rid of homosexuality in the DSM. And again, just so everyone's perfectly clear, I'm not stating that homosexuality should be in the DSM. I'm not saying that homosexuality is a mental disorder. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm stating that there was, historically speaking, if you look at it that way, there was an activist movement that got homosexuality out of the DSM, which is good. That is useful. It does not make sense to to pathologize people who have an attraction to the same sex. However, the movement that got it out was more radicalized at the time. So it's been open to social kind of radical forces since the 80s, from my perspective. And again, I like the APA, the American Psychiatric Association. I think they do a good job of kind of safeguarding their intellectual honesty and their integrity. And uh, I rarely read publications or, or news articles from their site that seem unnecessarily biased or virtue signaling. I do think it's at risk of being taken over because, as you've seen, these movements are so strong and so tribal, and they just activate these primitive, I feel like I'm going to die, I feel like I'm going to be ousted instincts, that they might acquiesce like the American Psychological Association has. So far here in the fifth iteration of it, I don't see any kind of pandering diagnoses or unnecessary hedging. Um, I think we could have a very complex and, and unnecessarily long conversation over about six hours about certain criteria and how they're worded for certain disorders. But otherwise, I think they're okay for now. I think the idea that they're moving towards a more dimensional model of things like personality and these other diagnoses is very useful because, again, just like with the big five, there are certain – narcissism is not a black and white concept. There are people who are more pathologically narcissistic like Charlie Sheen, can't wait to be sued, and then there are more people who are slightly less pathologically narcissistic like psychologists like myself because you have to be a little ego-driven in order to go for that advanced degree kind of person. Yeah, um, yeah. So or to there, speak a into a camera there. online. Exactly, and say people should listen to me speak, yeah. right? So it's it's there, but it's a spectrum. So the DSM, the APA is really the American Psychiatric Association, is doing a good job of trying to approach things from a more nuanced scientific kind of perspective, which I think is good. But it it can easily be hijacked. People are fallible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
You brought up the dimensional model. Uh, uh-huh. Could you explain that a little bit? It sounds kind of cool. Does it involve teleportation or alternate nah, realities? I or wish. <laughs> uh, God, I wish. Yeah. Oh, if only we're like Rick and Morty. Um, so, because that's that's how mature I am. Um, so, the standard model of personality since the beginning of the DSM is that there are these discrete put-in-a-box personality issues and disorders. They're personality styles that can be pathological. So there's cluster A, B, and C that used to exist, and um, the old clusters, you know, cluster B was the dramatic personalities like narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic, antisocial, hmm. etc. And they were thought of as these permanent or more stable things that were kind of all or nothing. So, you know, if you had a narcissistic personality like our friend Charlie Sheen, then you are more likely to have significant impairment across all domains of your life. The problem with that is, as we figured out in the research for the last 30 years or so, most people who have the personality style or, or, or organization of narcissistic personality are not pathologically suffering all day long. The vast majority of people who would score higher on kind of trait or dimensional measures of narcissism are not having five divorces and going on coke binges and thinking they have tiger blood, et cetera. Most people are just like paying mm-hmm. their authors, their CEOs, their psychologists, whatever it is, right? Like they're, they're busy using their ego to their advantage. Um, so what we've seen is that maybe there's a need for a more kind of shades of gray approach to how, um, pathological the personality is because as it stands i think for most personality disorders you have to have five or more symptoms um since early adulthood uh, 18 or so for uh, an extended period of time that were present somewhat before um 18 and it's like if you have five symptoms you now have narcissistic personality disorder and that's that's not really the most dimensional way of looking at it so what if it were you have an intensity of this first symptom like thinking you're special and need special treatment and it's like at the 80th percentile, but in terms of this third symptom, something like, you know, hmm. um, you know, believing you have a special authority or something that maybe it's at the 30th percentile. So if we look at it more dimensionally, maybe we can have a better understanding of how bad someone might be suffering as opposed to you think you deserve special treatment. Therefore, you're a narcissist, right? Like it's, it's a little more complex hmm. than that. And some of these personality pathologies, pathologies are more on a spectrum as it is. So something that we might call like dependent personality disorder might be more, it might better be placed on a spectrum of, I have some attachment insecurity here in the middle, but over here I have some pretty bad like trauma or, you know, just bad genetics for this particular dependency issue. And it's really hard for me to function with the exception of having someone control my life. Or you might be on this side where you have like Hmm. a break and it makes you kind of neurotic and it makes you really dependent upon the next person that you date because of some family systems issues and some psychopathology. So there's a spectrum. And we tend to just think of it as it's a very black and white. Oh, you have dependent personality. So you're never going to be able to be an independent person. You're always going to be clingy and needing relationships, et cetera. And it's just not that simple. Hmm. It's not. Yeah. How, would you be able to summarize, like, I don't know if this is possible, like with the text, like the DSM or with like the profession, 
that you're in, yeah. like, what is the conception of the human organism? Like, is there like a conception of it or is it just like this bundle of behaviors and geeky processes that are just churning out action? I mean, that, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> I know. It's just a thought. Cause, it's cause, impossible. Because if I, if I answer that question, then I seem like a huge narcissist. Like, I okay. know what psychology says about everything. And I, yeah. I wouldn't dare, I, I wouldn't dare say that I have a, a brilliant or succinct understanding of how humans work. I have, for someone my age, I think I have a succinct enough understanding that I can do decent clinical work and write decent books and make decent videos. I, I don't necessarily believe that I know enough about philosophy and human psychology to give the most uh, comprehensive understanding. What I will tell you briefly, not to negate what I just said, is that we are complex, messy creatures. And to think that anything is just biological or just psychological or just social is insane. We are this huge melting pot of instinctual forces, which are predominantly biological, but activated by real life circumstances. We are this complex mess of, you know, inherited medical issues and uh, social hierarchies that we deal with and family systems issues that shape our brain. I mean, the best, most comprehensive theory of how we are built in my mind or how a human functions is what's called interpersonal neurobiology by Dan Siegel. It's this concept that if you take a serious look at brain development from zero to eight and attachment development from zero to two and IQ development and all these things, you develop a certain kind of person who basically functions across the world because attachment security correlates highly with school success, job success, relationship success, all that kind of stuff. Hmm. So it's a good grounding concept, but it's not perfectly comprehensive, yeah. you know? So if it, were, if it were me, I would toss attachment security, interpersonal neurobiology, and the big five together and come up with a model that's built on those things because it gives you a well-rounded view of the person from an evolutionary perspective, a neuroscience perspective, a psychology perspective, and a social perspective. Obviously, you take the same person who is high neuroticism and low conscientiousness in this environment, in Southern California, where I am, and you shove them in Seattle, or you shove them in Wisconsin, or you shove them in China or Japan, they might function differently because those cultures are different, yeah. right? So it's, it's, it's unnecessarily complex, and I don't want to waste anyone's time by saying, yeah. I think I know the answer. You know? Well, here's another impossible question. Do you think that it's possible okay. to diagnose a society then, like to, to look at the look at the ways that, that a society is generally behaving and kind of diagnose where it's, uh, where it's imbalanced in the same way that we diagnose an individual. Do those things at all correlate? Or is it helpful to, I, like, when, when we diagnose the problems that we're facing together to look at as behavior think, and adaptability and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I would say it's, it's a perfectly reasonable thing that we all should be doing as both individuals and collectives to say, how well are we doing? How well am I doing? And do I have an unnecessary amount of depression? Do I have an unnecessary amount of anxiety? I think it's perfectly reasonable to speak in broader terms about how well we're doing. Are we too polarized in the United States right now? That's a reasonable question. And one of the ways that we can answer that is through, you know, pew polls and all that kind of stuff. And they can tell us like, you know, 
how much we're kind of racist or how much we're whatever it is, right? Yeah. I think it's to really dig into the specifics. Let's say, you know, there's this massive Pew Research study that comes out and says that, you know, almost 90% of the population in the United States is very partisan. And they're just kind of rigidly stuck in their partisan way of thinking. That is a useful self-diagnosis, in my opinion, because it's broad enough that it allows us to start thinking through different reasons why that might be the case. But if, if we were to say something more specific like, um, you know, everyone in the United States is traumatized. Well, first, what does that mean? And, and second, like, how do we, how do we really like manage that? Because I, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's such a, a unique concept psychologically that it'd be hard to really get a good self-report from most people about what's going on there. So I think if we're going to speak in broad terms to self-diagnose society, sure, yeah. Like, there are readily obvious things that we could easily self-diagnose. If you go to 50 different major cities in the United States and everyone's arguing about Julian Assange getting arrested, there might be something there. There might be some broader societal thing going on there. But to speak more specifically might require, yeah. Yeah, and the, but moving from a diagnosis to like a prognosis or, or like, well, how do we... How do we change society so that we don't have unnecessary amounts of Twitter battles or, or something, you know? Like, is that where it breaks down? Well, uh, I think it depends upon your assumptions about how we work as a collective. And hmm. this is where philosophy becomes more important and kind of economics becomes more important than um, individual pathology. I mean, Honestly, there's this, there's this running joke between a couple of my uh, psychologist colleagues and myself where it's like, if everyone just meditated all at once, right at the same time, the world would be a totally different place. Like the world would stop spinning kind of thing. Because basically speaking, if everyone just got checked in and like calmed down a little bit, we'd probably treat each other much better and function better. Yeah. But that's never going to happen because hmm. we are not designed to collaborate like that. And it's going to take a hell of a lot to convince everyone to get on the same page because we're just built so differently and we live in such different, you know, microcultures, et cetera. Um, I think to make a prognosis is kind of, uh, I think that's, I think prognosticating about culture in general or society at large, even though I, to be perfectly honest, I think I did that in my book. So I'm not going to be a hypocrite and say, Oh, you shouldn't do that when I did that. Um, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's more of a fear-based game that we play with ourselves to feel like we're doing something about the problem. So hmm. the only reason I say it is because we really can't definitively know what all 350 million people, et cetera, in the United States are really thinking and they really believe. We can't know what they're really motivated to do because most of us have crazy thoughts, but most of us never act on them, right? Like most of us think, oh, I want to freaking kill that guy for cutting me off or whatever or – You know, I hate that person for attacking me on social media. But in reality, if you met them on the street and they were basically nice to you, you wouldn't really hate them. Right. So we have thoughts, private thoughts that don't really pan out in behavior. And Hmm. that's a longstanding fact in social psychology for forever, 40 years, 50 years. So I think to prognosticate is just kind of a fool's errand just because we can't really know what people are capable of. In, in the specific domains of being less fearful or being more 
uh, thoughtful. I think most, I would generally say that most people are capable of living a healthier life. This is why people like Jordan Peterson are just taking off yeah. because he's speaking to the large segment of the population that's tired of suffering. So there are certain people who are motivated to not suffer. So he's yeah. speaking to them and they love him, which is great. So we can change, but I think to prognosticate specifically is kind of silly. I think yeah. it doesn't really serve us because we really don't know. And there's all sorts of outside variables that we can't control for. We don't know when the next major war is going to happen. We couldn't tell you, right? Yeah. We, we, we just don't know. And well, that will change the society. Yeah, the, the landscape will keep on shifting. One of the things that, to go back to Peterson, because you brought him up, one thing that I see him not necessarily toying with, I don't mean that cynically, but but considering, or playing, no, he plays with it, is is yep. myth mythology as as a way mm-hmm. of unifying people, like like as a way of giving meaning to everybody coincidentally, of getting them not necessarily on the same exact page, but within a few chapters of each other, right? Uh, yeah. What do you What do you think about that? What do you think about, uh, and not just religion itself, but but narratives and and like the, like we could say the American dream. I don't necessarily want to talk about that, but yeah. what is the role of of these narrative structures for society, or, or do are they really helpful? In your opinion, let me think about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my first instinct is yes and no. And the reason it's yes is because if you look at today's society, at least in the United States and and other Western societies and and Eastern societies, it's fair. And again, I'm not speaking as an authority on social psychology or anything else because it's not my specialty. I'm just making an observation as a person who's read a little bit here and there. Um, My belief, my experience of seeing people function is we do function within broader narratives. Um, as humans, it's absolutely true to say that, you know, epigenetically speaking, we kind of transmit ways of thinking and sensitivities to stimuli across generations. You know, the intergenerational hypothesis for transmission of trauma and anxiety and fear sensitivity is a real thing. So in kind of a, an evolutionary uh, epigenetic way, we can certainly say that certain narratives will fit how humans function over long periods of time because we are such primitive creatures. That's what it rests on that Peterson doesn't talk about. He doesn't talk about the fact that we're primitive creatures, and he needs to because we are. Um, so the fact that we're more primitive creatures means we can be easily swayed and kind of put in line based upon a narrative that makes sense for how we basically function. Yeah, but but I think it's also not the case because with major changes in technology and major changes in economics, etc., and population growth, I think that we'll start to see some of these narratives disappear because a lot of the these long-held narratives that Peterson talks about were born in very kind of uh, not whitewashed but like um, insulated cultures. So the Christian narrative was born in insulated cultures. The Hindu narrative and the Buddhist narrative was born in a very insulated culture. And now that we see a lot of cultures mixing, not to sound like Stefan Molyneux, not that he's a bad guy, um, but now that we see more cultures mixing, we're going to start to see these narratives get tangled up in each other. Hmm. And I think we're going to create new narratives out of that. I think the narratives that we will create 
we'll be more honed and specific to our evolutionary instincts. That's my belief, is that as we become more intermixed with each other, we're going to get a clearer sense of how we work evolutionarily speaking, instinctually speaking, because that's all we'll be left with, is because if our social narrative is destroyed because you can no longer be a racist or you can no longer be a Protestant or you can no longer be, uh, not equating those two things, you can no longer be a Eurocentric point of view, whatever it is, then that's going to disappear, and that used to orient you. Now you're going to be left with your instincts. Mm-hmm. I think your instincts are going to take over, and we're going to develop a narrative based upon how we're instinctually built. So the that that is an interesting and kind of even hopeful like uh, reading of the uh, the anti-narrative narrative of you know Eurocent- oh. anti-Eurocentrism and anti-Europeanness and like all the attacks that this group is receiving from the you know the mainstream media that that for whatever reason are funded by this group that that weird kind of thing that we're watching happen could be a way to to advance us in a way if it doesn't lead to utter crisis as we go from because if we lose that if we lose our identification with let's just say the color of our skin then what do i identify yeah. with i do we identify with right. dentures you know and then everybody's got to go to the orthodontist you know so we all have the same teeth so we can't <laughs> discriminate against all these things you know so i guess what you're kind of saying or maybe i should phrase this as a question are you saying that a human being's identity necessarily needs to collapse upon some sort of trait and once we strip away the trait it has to be replaced with something else so if it's not the color of our skin then it's got to be like the behavioral like what you what you called the instinct yeah well i mean behavior modifies based upon environment for sure or or we will shift our behavior to match an environment i think uh peterson's big focus on the big five is probably a great place to start because those traits are stable enough over time and across situations and across cultures. Like there are there are sex-specific differences on agreeableness and neuroticism that show up in every segment of the world. Mm-hmm. So men and women are different, and people who don't like it can suck it. It's just the truth. And if we were to, let's say, be okay with the fact that certain parts of us that actually have meaningful impact on the world, like our personality traits, which are slightly more stable, Maybe if we anchored on that, it would be better. However, I don't think it's useful to see ourselves from one dimension at all. I think it's extremely useful to see the insane complexity of who we are as people and just acknowledge whatever complexity shows up in the moment with the person in front of you. Because you and I might have a very intellectual academic conversation, and it's wonderful that we get to use all of our critical thinking skills and all sorts of cool stuff to have fun here in this moment and maybe do something useful for the world. But when I sit down with my patient tomorrow that I'm thinking of in my mind, I'm not going to be doing any of this right now. None of this is going to show up because he's a simpler guy. He's a nice guy. But he's a simpler guy. So he doesn't need this. He doesn't need this aspect of me to show up. He doesn't need my, my, uh, my nerdy openness to experience, so to speak, to show up. He needs me to be conscientious. He needs me to be a little bit more of his frontal lobe for him and kind of help him develop a little bit and grow. Hmm. So 
I think it's really a matter of looking at the, the unique complexity of who we are in a given moment, in a given circumstance, yeah. not to be a, a relativist, but I think, I don't think there's a need to just anchor on instincts or, or personality, but I think if I were to pick one thing, it would never be the color of our skin because that basically never matters any, anymore. 60 years ago, it mattered. Now it doesn't matter at all, basically. Um, but our personality might be a better thing to anchor on, mm. but even that changes a little bit over time. I think the best thing to anchor on is how we're functioning in a given moment and just be okay that the given moment changes and that we change from moment to moment to moment. That's me. I don't think we need to anchor on anything, to be quite honest. Well, it's interesting because you bring up the complexity of the human individual and in the light of your belief that only half pe half of all people are above average intelligence, that means that uh, the ability to recognize complexity is going to vary depending on the people. So we need something, yeah. uh, an ideology somehow that scales across intelligence uh, vectors, right? And and that's why I see that's why I see the 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 use of a mythological framework, not necessarily religious framework, but something that has a more primary. It 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 speaks across icons. It's and then. And then it has varying levels of complexity so that all these different people can align. I just, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying like something like the yeah, Greek Orthodox yeah. Church, where you have people yeah. with all these very varying uh, abilities get to converge for an hour a week and, and get to meditate on these same symbols, all from a different point of view, and then go out and that somehow resets them. And, and without that, I just wonder how society is going to function. Without yeah. that, you know, that alignment, unless we go back to just everybody has to watch a Marvel movie once a month. And then we all like, you know, like cheer for Thor, you know, and like that's where we get yeah. our, our unification. Yeah. Right. I mean, honestly, uh, so I'm a southerner and I'm a little more simple than that. Um, hmm. I, I like complex narratives. I like mythology. I, I love the Odyssey. I love all these very complex things that show up that we can make stories out of and, and we can elaborate on. I also think that there are simpler things that just are universal that would work for anyone, no matter what you look like or what you sound like. So uh, because, again, I have a bias, so I'm going to own my bias. Like, I love the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, and I clearly don't live it, but it's because of curse and I'm nasty and, and all sorts of fun things. But there's no culture on the planet that wouldn't benefit from adhering to right mindfulness or right livelihood or hmm. right speech. Like, if we were just a little bit more thoughtful and we didn't gossip and all sorts of fun things, we probably would have a better society. And it wouldn't matter mm. what your identity was. Because if you're mindful, it doesn't matter. If you're mm. not, if you're non-judgmentally aware, on the moment, on, in, on purpose, in the moment, on purpose, it doesn't matter. You know? Are you advocating for, like, a Bill C-16 for right speech instead of, like, against hate speech? God, no. No, and I, I did a whole video on hate speech, so I hope everyone who listens to this goes and watches it, because that is a terrible concept. It's just, that is an intellectually bankrupt concept. And here I am judging, not being mindful. Um, but I think we will never, ever grow as a society if we limit speech. And the argument I made in the video is, if you look at the history of the United States as just an example which I'm, I would imagine is probably similar across other Western kind of democratic-like societies, the more we, the Supreme Court in this country has made it okay to say hateful things and racist things and what have you. So there have been more Supreme Court decisions 
that say it's okay to say horrible things, and the incidence of prejudice, racism, hate crime has gone down. And in the caption of that talk I made, there's three sources from Harvard, very liberal kind of places, that show that that's the case. So it seems like the more we're free to speak, the more society grows, because evolutionarily speaking, hmm. we want to see people's sickness. Like, we are programmed as animals to look for obvious signs of sickness. So if someone like Richard Spencer, this is the example I gave in the video, someone like Richard Spencer, we want him to keep talking. We want him to keep saying horrible things to the extent that he says horrible things and say quasi-racist things to the extent that he says quasi-racist things hmm. so we can identify how sick he is and either push him away or help him get, you know, maybe get some therapy or something, right? Yeah. We, we need to see those obvious signs of sickness. So even if people say hateful things, we need to see it so we can figure out either who to deal with differently or who to avoid. We don't need to get rid of it because we can, back to the concept of the microaggression, there's basically no legitimate research that shows that people have serious mental health issues as a result of microaggressions or even modern hate speech. Now, there is some social psych research that shows there's some impact for racist speech in terms of how people perform in school and stuff like that, but it's not mm -hmm. black and white and one-to-one -one correlational. So we need people to speak freely, and we evolve quicker as a society. That's what it shows. In the light of what you said about wanting, like, those eightfold, uh, wait, the eightfold life, eightfold path, was that? Eightfold path. From Buddhism, yeah. Yeah, and one of those things he said was right speech. So, and you, you expressed the desire that everybody would practice that. So the question is, how do you, how do you implement that on a society level? Is it... Through conversation. Yeah, hmm. just through conversation. I mean, we, we can, you know, I can create thousands of YouTube videos and no one will watch them. But generally speaking, what works best is if we have a, if you and I were together at the same coffee shop where one of us lives, and you were gossiping me because one of the, the constraints of right speech is try not to gossip, if at all, hmm. because gossip creates unnecessary suffering, suffering and judgment and attachment and clinging to all these Buddhist terms. So if we were to have a conversation and you were to be gossiping to me about, you know, my fiance or one of your friends or whatever, I might be upset. And hmm. if I were to remember, if I were to be mindful in the moment or one of the other Eightfold Path concepts out, and think, okay, he's gossiping. How do I want to handle this? Maybe I just have a conversation with you and be like, hey, what's going on with you gossiping about you know, your wife right now or your friends or your coworkers, whatever? Um, and how does that really serve you to gossip? How does it make you feel when you gossip? What does it do for your relationships when you gossip? Just very straightforward, open-ended questions. Because generally speaking, the average person doesn't like it when they're gossiping. It like feels fun and powerful in the moment. But after that moment, when the consequences show up, yeah. and you've either contributed to a relationship breaking up or a bad thing happening, you're like, ah, I wish I didn't do that, generally speaking. So conversation is the best thing in the world. It's just hard because, as you said earlier about the Twitter problem, a lot of people are not operating in good faith. That's why face-to-face -face conversation is yes. something I recommend in my book. Like, the more we can have a conversation and really see each other and really kind of empathically understand where we're coming from, the easier it is to change kind of grassroots. 
I was just uh, in the Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt. He talks about gossip as an evolutionary adaptive trait. It's something that's... Yeah. He even hypothesizes that we have big brains because we're, we're social animals. And so there's all this processing yeah. power. And so gossip is one way to kind of make sure that everybody's acting and, and holding everybody accountable. So it seems yeah. like there are these emergent uh, activities that we do that get a bad rap, but are actually pretty necessary. And we can just say lust. Yeah. Like, we wouldn't exist if it weren't for lust, you know? And we probably right. exactly. wouldn't, you know, go that extra mile if it weren't for, you know, like that image of that, whatever that shape that you desire is up on that mountain <laughs> with the dragon coiled around that shape that you really desire, right? So, right. so I guess mindfulness, or how do I phrase this as a question? Is mindfulness... The ability to, to distinguish where where it goes too far, where where it has a corrosive effect, like these these drives, these passions, these uh, these instincts need to be managed, and mindfulness is a way of holding court over oneself. Oh sure, yeah, because I think there's a stark difference between mindfully saying, "Hey Benjamin, you know, you know, I heard what you were saying about me to so and so, and it, it kind of bugs me, and I just wish we could have a more open relationship and." just be able to talk about what's going on so that, you know, we can get along better and life gets easier for us versus did you hear what Benjamin said about me? Oh my God, what a cunt he is. Hmm. Those are different things. So gossiping in the, in the latter way versus yeah. having a conversation in the former way is very, very different, right? If I were to say to my fiance, man, that conversation with Benjamin, I don't know. I don't know what was going on there. That's different than hmm. what a terrible person he is. Yeah. And, like, I can't believe he did that. Like, oh, my God, Becky, her butt is so big. Like, that's her mix a lot. Like, there's, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's something, I think, different in terms of the quality and the intention, back to being mindful, about having a conversation with someone about what's going on in the here and now with a group of people or people in your world versus the more affectively driven and hedonistic, I'm going to gossip so that I can affect some change through you to the other person. Yeah. I'm going to talk through you to affect that next person. Huh. I think they're different. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like, uh, one of the pathways to becoming wise is to use an archaic term is to become more and more aware of these, these circuits that we get stuck in as, as organisms, yeah. right. And, and, and to see, like, kind of see the eddies and, and understand kind of how to use the momentum of those things to get beyond yeah. them or, or, or to not get stuck in, in those different, uh, you know, it, like, like to go back to Twitter, like you, I can just see this conversations automatically getting go nowhere. I need to either be obsequious or get out the door or figure out because it's just a disaster and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you, even though I, I would never even begin to think that I have any kind of wisdom. Uh, hmm. my, ac my academic conception of wisdom is something to the effect of what you said in the sense that knowing that your behavior is not serving you and making a change based upon it is more like wisdom for sure. Because um, you can be intelligent and just have horrible wisdom. You can be a very smart person and just do yeah. terrible stupid things and we see that all the time with politicians and ceos of companies and all sorts of stuff like you can be very bright and just do terrible things so wisdom is, is an earned skill it's a skill in my opinion it's the skill of seeing knowing and changing 
And that's hard to do because we're so automatic pilot nowadays. That's why mindfulness is helpful because it gets us out of automatic pilot, you know? Could we talk a little bit about trauma? I have to head off to work in, in about 20 minutes or something like that. But are you, do you yeah. feel safe enough to talk about trauma? I feel super safe. I feel so safe. It's great. What would you, or what would you like my opinion on? How can I, uh, how can I? Well, okay. Uh, I don't, I don't know where, where this would be most useful or interesting or juicy. Um, but it, it seems I, like uh, trauma is getting a bad rap because it, there's been a slippage in the term, but you, you uh -huh. said earlier that we're learning more and more about it and how it operates and what it comes from. Um, do you think that there's false trauma? Do you think that, that it's, it's being misapplied and like, PTSD, everybody gets to claim PTSD from something. I, I guess that's a straw man. I don't want to go down that path. But um, but I was just thinking in terms of like that concept creep with everything is getting more and more, you know, like guarding people yeah. from trauma while at the same time we're learning more about it. So just yeah. like a healthy understanding I, of it. I think, you know, to really answer that question honestly and thoroughly enough to make sure I'm not misrepresenting the science, the neuroscience in particular on trauma. Um, it would be a, a different talk for a different day. I'll, I'll make one brief statement on it in the sense that um, we all get overwhelmed in life. That's normal. It's, it's perfectly normal to, if, if you're alive, you should be experiencing bad things. We have more neural circuitry that's dedicated to understanding and managing negative affective states than positive affective states. That's why they're so important and so rare. Um, so we have a variety of biological and social reasons that we can be sensitive to trauma, both through modeling of behavior and temperament and uh, attachment security, all sorts of stuff that can make us susceptible to being traumatized. Um, and you see this in the, in the literature on PTSD. Not everyone who comes back from war um, will show up with PTSD because they might have some protective family factors like a solid family to reintegrate into or a job or a community to reintegrate into. That's one of the biggest predictors of people succeeding and coming back from war. Um, also, not using substances works great, too. Um, but generally speaking, most people will go through some kind of trauma. They will go through something that is overwhelming, that they can't quite make sense of, that creates this incomplete feedback loop in their brain between their amygdala and their prefrontal cortex that they can't fully process and kind of finish the story of. Now, does that mean that you have such bad trauma that you need treatment or that there's a problem or that you have PTSD? Most, no, most people who go through horrible stuff don't need any kind of treatment. Most people who, you know, almost get hit by a car or get hit by a car don't need treatment for that kind of thing. They need some supportive friends, some places to vent, and they'll be okay. So most people will experience a terrible thing. It's not to say that that will be traumatizing in the sense that it will result in a, um, a reliably diagnosable syndrome. So I think oops, there is a concept creep going on for sure. It was traumatic when Donald Trump tweeted that or what have you. It's like, it's mm -hmm. ridiculous. Um, but I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people will go through overwhelming events in life that they can't quite process and tolerate. That's a fair statement. And is there, is there basic rules of thumb for, uh, completing that feedback loop? You said there's an incomplete feedback loop and it, what, yeah. what are the general ways in which you would guide somebody into, uh, erecting, uh, or 
establishing harmony in those brain weirdnesses that are going on. Right, right. Well, the two most uh, evidence-supported efficacious treatments for PTSD or trauma disorders include narrative therapy and exposure therapy. And both of those treatments serve some basic purposes for the individual to complete that feedback loop. So exposure therapy, which is the most efficacious treatment for PTSD, um, whether it's virtual reality or just narrative exposure therapy, allows you to process. To process. And by process, I simply mean A leads to B leads to C. Okay. I was overwhelmed. I couldn't tolerate it. And now I'm okay. A leads to B leads to C. So it allows you to process, and then allows you to integrate the overwhelm and keep it in the time frame when it existed when you were being overwhelmed as opposed okay. to the here and now. Huh. And then you get to de- desensitize yourself to that particular memory or experience, kind of like building calluses on your hand. That's what you get to do for that particular memory. You get to rebuild calluses, which means basically neuroscientifically shutting up your amygdala and allowing your hippocampus to talk to your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex to say, I am okay. This memory is through. I am through. It is over with. Okay. And then the narrative therapy does basically the same thing, where you make sense of the story from beginning, middle, and end. Because one of the problems with trauma and PTSD is we can't quite – I have a patient I'm going to see tomorrow who was horribly raped and um, beaten by her two older brothers when she was a kid for years. And to this day, she can't understand how her brothers would have done that to her, even though she's aware of all the family circumstances and their brother's sickness and all sorts of stuff that made them do that to her. She can't understand it because there's an incomplete feedback loop between the memory that's overwhelming that feels like the here and now mm-hmm. versus who they are now and how she understands them now. Now that she's had some perspective on them, she knows how sick they are. When she was a kid, she didn't know how sick they were, so it didn't make sense. And she felt like she was going to die because she was being you know, assaulted and what have you. So now she's not going to die. She is safe, even though she's experiencing this memory that makes her feel like she is not safe. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's a real tough thing to treat, but... Basically, we complete the loop by processing and helping them develop calluses. Yeah. It seems like, and this might be uh, hookum, but it's like uh, something pops us out of a linear understanding of our life, and Uh that thing that pops us out just remains just with us constantly. It's no longer in the past. It's, It's always present. So, Always present. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the amygdala and the hippocampus are talking to each other saying, this is going on right now because all these incoming stimuli of seeing, in her case, seeing her brother once a week or whatever actually triggers this memory of this horrible or these set of horrible things that happened to her. So it's this here and now experience of all these bad things that happened in the past are just as real as when she was a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So we're, we're kind of having a time warp problem. A time warp problem? Yeah, for sure. It's a it's a bad colloquialism, but yeah. Is that what you said? I just wanted to make sure because it sounds cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So you're like you're like the doc with the DeLorean and the flux capacitor, and you're just like getting Marty back to the lightning. Like just touch the lightning, and and you'll get back to the future, or back to the present. That's an interesting metaphor. I kind of, no. yeah. I mean, with trauma in particular, kind of, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. And how did you end up uh, studying that in particular? Uh, trauma. So I studied, I started studying trauma in grad school a little bit in undergrad too, in research labs when I was just a lackey, um, because it's the most, 
it's one of the most, it's probably not the most, it's one of the most impairing and societally destructive conditions in my experience because it affects the individual, the family. It's, a, it's highly correlated with suicide. It's highly correlated with substance abuse. And substance abuse in particular just has an unnecessary kind of burden of illness on society, $820 billion a year or so in terms of medical expenses and treatment expenses and legal expenses. So if we can solve the underlying problem that creates the substance abuse disorder or the relationship problem or whatever it is, it's, a, it's usually a core component of a lot of people's sickness that show up in the clinical world, um, then the rest of it gets easier to manage. If you don't feel as overwhelmed, you don't need to go get wasted to feel better. Yeah. So the cool thing about trauma is that it is pretty much treatable, like yeah. fairly well treatable. Yeah. Yeah. It's just most people don't get good treatment. Very few people actually get like legit narrative therapy or exposure therapy. Or nowadays, you know, EMDR is becoming fairly popular for trauma disorders and it's got some evidence behind it. Um, so it's, it's most people don't know how to treat it. And most people, and the reason that most clinicians, this is a judgment and an assertion, so I'm going to own that up front. Um, most clinicians do not have the appropriate calluses themselves to tolerate someone else feeling overwhelmed. Because to sit across from, hmm. go back to my patient I'm going to see tomorrow, to sit across from her and hear her talk about being raped and tortured by her brothers for years is hard on the average person. And it's even, it's still difficult for a trained professional because we are like, we're going to get overwhelmed. So even if you have very good mental health yourself, which I don't know if I do, um, it's going to be difficult to tolerate that person's overwhelm because we have such a strong empathic response to people. So most people can't do that work and they avoid it like the plague. People avoid addiction, personality disorders, which are predominantly driven by trauma in many cases. And PTSD, because it's just, it's so hard to sit with that level of chaos in the person, to use Jordan Peterson's words. Yeah. So there are some of us who are just, we're down for the challenge, so we do it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, you guys uh, hopefully get some sort of hazard pay, but maybe you just get paid in wisdom or tolerance <laughs> to chaos. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, do you find you know, that you need to, like, do you find that you end up absorbing chaos and then you need to put it somewhere else. Is that kind of how you, you manage that, which you absorb through exposure? So when I'm working with clients about specifically trauma, even though I try and do this with my other patients as well, I'm really hyper-focused on making sure I know the difference between me and the other person hmm. and that I don't get swept up in the intense emotionality of the other person, not to be stoic, not to be cold and mean or rude, just to be calm, mindfully aware if I can muster it, and just allow the other person to feel as horrible as they need to feel, and I can be kind of that safe rock uh, person for them in that moment as they're processing, making sense of, and calming down in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, I do that, and that allows me to not take it home with me. Yeah. I have friends that I can process the experience with and it allows me to not take it home with me. Coworkers, etc. It allows mm -hmm. me to not take it home with me. Having good boundaries myself, saying, you are not the same as me, allows me to not take it home with me. Now, it's hard because sometimes I will have just a very kind of back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back day of, you know, eight or ten clients, just all childhood trauma, all attachment security, and some of it will resonate with my stuff as a kid. 
And it might be harder for me to come home to my fiance and be like, hey, I had a fucked up day. I need some space. No offense to you, right? Like mm-hmm. some, some days are like that. But I generally try to just make sure I keep the professional boundary and yeah. not allow myself to get as swept up in the emotional experience with people. And the best way for that to achieve that is mindfulness, is that non-judgmental awareness of my internal process in the moment so that I can just experience and be okay and have a healthy separation, a healthy objectivity about the experience. Very difficult to do, yeah. but it's doable. It's, that reminds me of one of the phenomena that I witnessed on Twitter when I first uh, first started using it. Uh, was that like a traumatic event would happen in the real world and then everybody would process that together and it'd end up like magnifying the trauma, like with what happens at Charlottesville. It just, that shockwave just, it turned into a tsunami. It's like people aren't processing. They're just, we're collapsing into that moment and then expanding that moment. It's this odd phenomenon. And it really does take people either to in the moment be mindful or just like kind of deal with the consequences of how that, that echoes just back and forth throughout the the whole discourse and then makes it even more and more and more and more chaotic. Yeah, it's hard because a lot of people do what classic, you know, PTSD patients will do. That's why that word comes, that's why trauma is coming up a lot because we think we're being traumatized by everything. But we just have this natural, Hmm. um, how would you say it? We have this natural tendency to obsess and feel overwhelmed when a horrible thing happens in society because, like I said, we're, we're built for, more tribalistic societies, so we needed to kind of scream bloody murder throughout the tribe to make sure nothing horrible happened. If there was an outsider coming into our tribe, we had to freak out to make sure we were all on guard so we didn't die, right? So because we're built a little bit more primitively than we would like to give ourselves credit for, we do overreact a fair amount, and we do get stuck perseverating and obsessing, etc. Um, and just again, most people don't understand because we're on automatic pilot and to really fully understand yourself and how we work from just the evolutionary perspective would, would take, you know, a couple of good books and a couple of like really good courses, et cetera. You know, you have to literally go listen to brilliant people like Brett Weinstein talk about how we're designed and in the game theoretical perspective, how we work with each other. And it's really hard to get people to sit down and listen for five minutes of real conversation sometimes. Yeah. Especially if that real conversation is effectively, uh, uh, threatening their tribe. Yes. Against their narrative. Yeah. 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 Well, Patrick, can we do this again sometime? Yeah. Whenever you want. I'm going to throw out a great, um, I'm going to try to make a great introduction and include your book, the fear problem, not to be, uh, confused with the fear factor, uh, because you have more hair than Joe Rogan. If he wasn't, he the one who hosted the fear factor. I can't remember. He was. Yeah. I have some hair for now. (laughs) And, uh, you are in, um, and I'll plug your channel too. A lot of great content on there. Thank you. Uh, is there anything you want to sign off with? Like, is there like an Irish proverb oh. that you hang above your desk and, and mutter the Buddhist <laughs> mantra that <laughs> keeps you sane? No, no. Uh, I think um, I, I, I think the only thing I'll end on is we have an awfully serious society right now, and there's a desperate need for more comedy. So <laughs> to sign off, I would say uh, in good old-fashioned Bill Burr fashion, because he's been on my mind for the last couple of weeks. 
I hope you have a great day and go yourself.